Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The German writer Erich Fromm was one of the most important social philosophers of the last century. In books like Escape from Freedom and The Sane Society, Fromm tried to explain the rise of fascism by drawing on the work of Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud. Himself in exile from the Nazis, Fromm settled permanently in the US, but remained a strong critic of American capitalism and the nuclear arms race. A best-selling author in his own time, who appeared on national television, Fromm may not be as well-remembered today as former colleagues like Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. But his ideas are still an important tool in the fight against authoritarian nationalism. Our guest today is Kieran Durkin. Kieran teaches at the University of York and he's the author of The Radical Humanism of Eric Fromm. I began by asking him about Fromm's experience as a young man when his native Germany went through a decade of war, revolution and economic crisis from 1914 onwards. I think that, you know, living through these events, events that completely transfigured Germany in the early 1900s, this had an absolutely profound effect on, on from He spoke some years later, in his 60s actually, of the Great War as the event more than anything else that determined his intellectual development and of um, how struck he was by the nakedness of the hate and irrationality as it manifested in German nationalist feeling towards the British at the time. You know, how the British had suddenly become evil and unscrupulous, intent on destroying the innocent and all too trusting German heroes, as he put it. So I think the whole experience of the war with its mass irrationality, not to mention, of course, it's, you know, what you'd say is its unheralded kind of level of destructiveness, was an absolutely central influence on Fromm and, and what ultimately pushed him in the direction of the study of psychology and of Freud and of psychoanalysis. On the issue of politics more specifically, Fromm reported being influenced in this kind of seeing through of the mass irrationality of German nationalism by reading the arguments of the socialist deputies in the Reichstag who voted against the war um, the war budget and who were visible at the time in their attacks on the German government's official official position. Despite this, it's, it's also true that Fromm was somewhat removed from organised politics during this period. You know, he wasn't involved in any radical parties or parties in any stripe during his life in Germany as a whole, in fact. Later in the US, when he became much more directly involved, and a bit later in his time in the US, he maintained, nevertheless, that his, you know, his personality wasn't quite suited to politics and he didn't have the temperament for it, which, which may have been a factor um, in this kind of earlier distance from politics. But whatever the reason might have been, it's clear that he was influenced by socialist ideas during and after the war. Um, many decades later, in the 1950s, he, he offers strong and fulsome praise of Rosa Luxemburg, you know, who was, of course, brutally murdered during the reactionary crackdown um, at the hands of the Freikorps, unsupported by right-wing elements of the SPD. And the fact is, he went on to study Marx at university and and moved into the Marxist movement, albeit 
some kind of remove after graduating. And just finally, maybe I think it's important in this connection to to recognise that Fromm was brought brought up in an Orthodox Jewish home, and he was very pious as a kind of a child and young adult. Um, and in these early years, until about the mid nineteen twenties, he was, in fact, more influenced by the romantic socialism of his Talmud teacher, a man called Salman Rabinkov, than um, and also um, the famous Frankfurt rabbi Hermann Cohen, who he also studied under. And so he, he inherited this view of socialism that grew out of a concern with the messianic time um, spoken of by the biblical prophets, you know, the, the time of universal peace and harmony, um, where the lions lie down with the lambs, etc. And his kind of affinity to this notion of socialism, which for Fromm tended to focus on at this early stage on a contrast with medieval culture, I think that is fair to say that that, remained important to him throughout his life, even if it gave way to more orthodox and critical Marxian elements as he matured. Fromm began working with the Frankfurt School at the end of the 1920s. What was the significance of the Frankfurt School in German intellectual life at that time, as a body that was independent of the university system on the one hand, and the left-wing parties, the communists and the social democrats, on the other? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I think the first thing to say is that, um, you know, the Frankfurt School is a name that was given somewhat after the fact to a group of thinkers and employed by and uh, associated with the Frankfurt Institute for Social Research, which was set up in the early 1920s by a man called Felix Weil, uh, the son of a, a wealthy grain merchant from Argentina. And Felix Weil was interested in promoting Marxism and Marxist theory and so managed to persuade his father to finance the, the building and the equipping of the institute, providing it also with a yearly grant of something like 120,000 marks, as well as funding um, the professional chair, which the the institute director held at the University of Frankfurt. So, um, as you say, the, the institute was affiliated to the university but it wasn't dependent upon its administration. And what this meant, in effect, was that while graduate students, postgraduate students, were able to take part in the Institute's research work, Weil was able to decide both who the director would be and the ideological line that the, the Institute would follow. And in this situation of having a well-funded, quasi-independent Marxist Institute I would say it was quite unique back at the time, um, as it would be today. We hear a lot today about cultural Marxism and this kind of ridiculous notion that there is a preponderance or excessiveness of Marxist professors in university, social science and, and humanity departments. But for anyone who's actually spent any time in a social science or humanities department, it's, it's quite clear that the contrary is the case, that it's actually quite difficult to be Marxist and get a job and many subject areas today. Um, and this would have been very much the case back in the 1920s. So to have that kind of freedom that the Institute had would have been a real boon for all those involved with it. And the independence the Institute had from left-wing parties was important too when you consider the development of what we now call the Frankfurt School in that it kind of 
afforded them a degree of latitude in terms of what subjects they wanted to approach and how they approached them. Because although in its early years, I think it was set up in, in, in 1923 or four to be precise, the Institute did work more like a traditional labour studies institute, but in the latter years it moved to a more kind of, I guess, critical and social philosophical framework after Horkheimer became the director. And this kind of distance from the left-wing movements of the time gave it a degree of freedom, I suppose, in terms of the topics of their analysis. But if we think of the Frankfurt School and its history, it's also true that this kind of remove from the left-wing movements facilitated, or more, more accurately, I think, encouraged this divorce from practical struggle that the Frankfurt School is notorious for. The fact, if you think about the, the central members of the Institute, from Horkheimer Adorno, who was to join much later, none of them had their origins in the labour movement. And so this kind of disconnect from actual left-wing politics was there from the very start and encouraged its kind of focus on alienation and the alienating conditions of social life with some benefits and many, many drawbacks. How important was Fromm's relationship with Max Horkheimer? And what were the main questions that they sought to address in their work together? Yeah, um, the, the relationship between Fromm and Horkheimer was, you know, it was of great importance to both figures who... Um, in this kind of early period of the Institute, at least, were the leading theoretical talents. And I say that because most histories of the the Frankfurt Institute and the Frankfurt School kind of relegate from Fromm's importance, but it's absolutely that at this early stage they were the leading kind of talents. And, and Fromm had met Horkheimer probably through his friend, school friend, Leo Lowenthal, during his time at Berlin Psychoanalytical Institute, where he was training to become a psychoanalyst. And the Berlin Institute, unlike its Viennese counterpart, where the original institute where Freud taught, the Berlin Institute from its very beginnings was concerned with applying psychoanalysis to social issues. So while Fromm was there, he was part of this group of kind of um, dissident young socialist analysts, a group which included Wilhelm Reich, who alongside from became the kind of pioneer of authoritarian studies but who went famously went mad living in the united states thinking he'd discovered some kind of um, universal life force called organ energy and during this period from had attempted some social applications of psychoanalysis he'd written an article on the psychoanalysis of the sabbath um, and one on the psychoanalysis of the petty bourgeoisie he then moved to Frankfurt to set up his own psychoanalytical institute, along with a few other figures, which was housed in the same building as the Institute for Social Research. So this kind of brought Fromm to Frankfurt. In the case of Horkheimer, who had actually helped the kind of facilitation of this, uh, the setting up of the psychoanalytical institute, he had been interested in psychology, but not psychoanalysis as such, until around the time he became acquainted with Fromm. And while there were, it's fair to say, other sources for Horkheimer's development, he, he himself is clear that he learned a considerable amount about psychoanalysis from Fromm, which is something you can see in his writings around the time. In terms of their work together, 
at the Institute. This is summed up pretty well in Horkheimer's inaugural address at, as director in 1930. In this address, Horkheimer speaks of an interdisciplinary mixing of social philosophy and the empirical sciences, and particularly the mixing of Marxism and psychoanalysis, which was, of course, precisely the kind of work that Fromm was already engaged in. And what he had in mind here was the investigation of um, connections between the economic life of society, the psychological development of its individuals, and uh, changes within specific areas of culture, such as customs, fashion, public opinion, sports, lifestyles, entertainment, etc. And I think it's important or helpful to remember that all of this takes place in the context of the crisis of Marxism, as, as Karl Korsch described it, that evolves on the back of the First World War, the back of the miscarriage of Bolshevism and of the failure of kind of world socialist revolution to begin to manifest in, in, in Germany and other places. So with Stalin in power by this time and in the USSR and the, and the Nazis on the rise in Germany, there was this real sense that Marxism was in, in crisis. So from the early, the early to mid-1920s onwards, what you see is this attempt to kind of return to the essence of Marx, you know, as represented often and mostly, I think, in terms of his underlying philosophy and in the development of what we could call non-mechanical readings that were considered closer to the real Marx and those put forward by uh, figures such as Karl Kautsky or Edward Bernstein, interpretations considered deterministic, economistic, or, or kind of narrowly objectivist. So the Frankfurt Institute under Horkheimer and from moved in this direction of returning to Marx's philosophy, but trying to expand it socially um, in terms of you know the analysis of cultural aspects, and I think most importantly in terms of what they saw as the kind of subjective barriers to socialism. And one of the first tasks that um, Fromm was given by Horkheimer on, on joining, he joined first part as a part-time member, becoming kind of fully tenured later on, uh, was to lead a kind of innovative study of the German, mostly blue-collar workers um, that, that kind of sought to analyse on a, on a psychoanalytical and social psychoanalytical basis the connections between character um, or personality, as they called it, and political commitment. And so this study, of course, takes place at, at the time at which the, the, the National Socialist Party was growing in support, and they wanted to probe the relationship between outwardly socialist or, or democratic sympathies, you know, people that voted for socialist or, or communist parties, and the kind of unconscious authoritarian attitudes that they thought might in some cases underlie them. And um, yeah, it's a very innovative, innovative study and, and they did this, they carried it out by a detailed survey of um, I think 271 questions uh, on things like, who are your heroes? Did they like Marx, Einstein and Pasteur? Or did they like, you know, Caesar, Napoleon, and Alexander the Great, did they think that women should wear lipstick and go to work? 
or not, and did they think that children should be strictly disciplined or not. So it captured um, more classical authoritarian traits as well as ones that we recognise today as being related to this. And, and the analysis of the data for this study was striking. You know, They concluded that roughly 10% of the participants were could be considered authoritarian based on their responses and on the kind of interpretation of their responses. Roughly 15, they'd described as kind of democratic or humanistic, and the remaining 75% were somewhere between the two. And Fromm and his team uh, predicted that uh, the authoritarians would support the Nazis, while the democratic humanists would most likely stand up and oppose them. But the problem was that this kind of democratic and humanistic 15% might not be strong enough to defeat the authoritarian 10% if the 75% in the middle were psychologically unprepared to resist. The following clip comes from the documentary series The World at War, narrated by the actor Laurence Olivier. The armed forces paraded to swear a new oath, where once they had sworn loyalty to the Constitution, now they pledged themselves to Hitler, personally, by name. For German officers, an oath was almost physically real. Hitler had trapped them. Now they could not disobey him without disobeying the fatherland. Despite some kind of issues with the research, it, it was, in the literal sense, pioneering, so it had some uh, what's considered today methodological flaws. But it seems pretty clear to me that the study was eerily prescient. And it's important for not only what it tells us about authoritarianism and the right, but also, I think, authoritarianism and misogyny on the left. You know, in the history of the Frankfurt School, there was suddenly an abrupt interruption to their work, much as there was for the broader German left and German intellectual life, when the Nazis took power in 1933. And as you wrote in your piece for Jacobin, Fromm played a, an important role in negotiating the transition of the Frankfurt School from Germany to the US. What do you think it meant for his work and for the work of the Frankfurt School in general um, to make that transition, in particular from a country where Marxism wasn't just an intellectual philosophy, it was a political ideology that was explicitly embraced by mass working class parties, both the Social Democrats and the Communists, and then to make the shift to the United States where you did have parties of that kind, but they were very much on the margins of political life. Uh, yeah, I think this is a really crucial issue that it was obviously a big deal. This, the relocation was a big deal for the institute itself and for the and, and for those that were a part of it you know they were leaving potentially this very beneficial situation that we, we spoke of earlier in terms of the kind of um, independence from the university administration they were also moving to another country and, and to an English speaking country a non-German speaking country at that so there was a degree of reluctance amongst the members although the political situation in Germany at the time was obviously becoming intolerable as predominantly Jewish scholars, notorious for their Marxism, it clearly made sense 
to move. And actually, in terms of the move itself, it was from that Hartheimer charged or gave responsibility in terms of making investigations of potential options. He'd been recuperating in, in uh, from tuberculosis in Geneva since 1932 and was on a tour of America giving lectures in, in 1933 where he visited a number of potential institutions. And, and in the end, they decided upon... Columbia University in New York, where from himself and only from had originally been offered a research position based on the recommendations of a sociologist called uh, Robert Lind. Um, but after making it clear that he would only accept if the Institute as a whole was accommodated, Columbia, uh, they relented and the Institute as a whole settled there in, in 1934. Um, but yeah, in terms of the actual move itself, it, you know, as you, as you rightly say, they were moving to an environment where Marxism was not only not prominent in intellectual and political life, but actually, in a sense, prohibited. And the Institute and Horkheimer himself was very paranoid about the mention of Marx in Institute publications at the time. In fact, this is where the name critical theory, which is associated with the Frankfurt School, it comes from. It is born here and it testifies to this fact that instead of mentioning Marx, they would mention critical theory with the implication being for those who knew they were talking essentially about a form of Marxism. And I think this no doubt led to a certain lack of straightforward engagement in Marxist studies um, and caused, surely caused, I think, from and also especially Horkheimer to temporarily play their Marxism. But I think there's another way of looking at it as, as well that's not inconsistent with this analysis, and it is the fact that the Institute, who were already at a certain remove from the working class movement in any case, were suddenly in the world's leading capitalist nation, and they were privy to trends in, in, in culture and consumption that were established in the US first, perhaps, but, or certainly became distinct and, and what and adopted the form that they were to take almost everywhere else. And I'm thinking here of what Horkheimer and Adorno were to call in Dialectic of Enlightenment the culture industry. So what a chance this was, I think, in a sense, for the Institute to explore these trends, as can be seen with uh, by the, the hypothesis of the Dialectic Enlightenment um, written by Adorno and Horkheimer. This was, in, in a sense a boon to the Institute, although, again, it also helps explain the embarrassing lack of discussion of class in in their work and in Fromm's work, I think, in many places. And, yeah, and so, obviously, while this kind of de-emphasis of class during their time in the, or, or in Fromm's case, in, in the early period, perhaps, had some truth to it, you know, the fact that the US was in its high period of capitalism with upward social mobility etc it clearly ignored the the vibrancy of resistance in certain quarters and um, things like the miners and other strikes that that punctuated the 1950s it was after making that move to the us and it was while the struggle the military struggle against nazi germany was in progress uh, that from published what i think is still his best known and most influential work Escape from Freedom, uh, also known as The Fear of Freedom. What were the main themes of that work? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it, it is his best known and, and in many ways best work. Um, it was published first in the, in the US, 
with the title in English, with the title Escape from Freedom. Its publication in, in Britain and Ireland a year later had the title The Fear of Freedom. And in many ways, I prefer the, the, the kind of British and Irish title. Um, so, the, yeah, this book appeared in, in America originally in, in 1941 and was actually, it was Fromm's first publication after leaving the Institute. And I guess the central theme was that Fromm saw, or what Fromm saw as, this kind of catastrophic flight from the progress towards greater and greater forms of political freedom that had been made in Europe over the preceding centuries and this flight from that into the arms of a series of autocratic, authoritarian, fascist, Nazi rulers such as Hitler, uh, Mussolini, Stalin, etc. And I think what Fromm was thinking of here was, of course, the flight from monarchy, and although a lot of the, the kind of... Um, topplings of the monarchy happened after the war but you have the kind of struggle for the franchise and a generally greater sense of individual rights vis-a-vis the state and religion etc. He was thinking too about of course the growth of the socialists and, and women's movements and he was literally astounded as you know anyone would have been on the left that all of this had been overturned in just a few short decades after the war and so Fromm wanted to understand this process. He wanted to understand and explain how and why it was that Nazism had taken hold in Germany, for instance, and and why so many individuals came to support Hitler. And he he did so with the notion of the authoritarian character, which is an idea that's built on, on psychoanalytical grounds, and in particular on the notion that there exists certain types of individuals who by birth, schooling, socialization in the family and and in wider society and so on are predisposed in a sense to authoritarian attitudes. Think here of the discussion around many Trump supporters or some of them at least who are characterized and, and rightly in many cases of willing to submit to and actively support authoritarian leaders, people who you know, get pleasure out of aspects of authoritarian rule and who can be relied upon to support um, forms of authoritarian movement. So, so yeah, he takes this psychoanalytical theory and applies it to the situation in Germany at the time. Um, and like most Marxist analyses, he focuses on the role of the lower middle class in particular on the idea that certain socioeconomic and political changes, and particularly the decline of this kind of traditional middle class in the face of the monopoly capitalism of the era, and obviously hyperinflation, which comes on the back of the defeat of Germany in the First World War, the Treaty of Versailles, the loss of the monarchy, as you mentioned. So all this, from argued, had a deep effect on this this class in particular, as well as other aspects in society. And what he said that it did was it kind of removed the traditional psychological supports and mechanisms of self-esteem for this class and for other aspects in the population. So the economy was destroyed. There's no esteem from relative position of uh, social status. Savings had gone up in smoke. Life chances of children or families in particular were ruined. There was no longer, he argued, anyone to look down upon, no Kaiser to look up to. 
And they had to face a situation in which Germany, after the war and after Versailles, was significantly and, and embarrassingly weakened. And so from takes this and, and says and identifies um, what he argued were deep feelings of anxiety and, and powerlessness in the population and in the lower middle class in particular, feelings which Hitler was able to capitalise upon with his kind of authoritarian messages of and racialized messages of love for the strong, hate for the weak, and especially for those socialists and Jews guilty of the stab in the back that he argued and many people believed had sold Germany out, out to the Allies. So what Hitler and the Nazi movement itself was seen by Fromm to, in many cases, give a means of escape from these intolerable psychological burdens that were experienced in more or less on a mass basis. But it's important to, to point out that the book was not just focused on fascism, but on authoritarianism in the USSR and on aspects of what Fromm argued were authoritarianism in, in the US and the free world, so to speak. This authoritarianism, Fromm said, was, you know, it was less overt in the US and, and other democratic nations, but it was also more anonymous. It was pushed by public opinion, by radio, by commercials and other means of, of cultural conditioning. And so because of this, it was also, in a sense, more insidious. So, yeah, the book was um, a criticism in general of this move in, in kind of world culture towards different forms of authoritarianism. And I think it speaks to the world situation at the time in particular, but also has real relevance to today. When he spoke to an audience of American students in the 1960s, Fromm explained his psychological understanding of nationalism. If I stood here and said, look, I am the most wonderful person in the world, and maybe I would include my family, my father and my mother. We are just wonderful. The rest are dumb, are dirty, are uneducated, inferior morally. Well, you would know where to send me. But if I stood here and said, my nation, my religion, my race, my political creed are far vastly superior to everybody else. And at best, everybody else's nation and creed is, uh, uh, well, if they are wise, take us as an example. Then many people, I hope not too many among you, will think that this kind of talk is very virtuous. Uh, I would seem to be a very religious man, uh, or a very patriotic man, or a very loyal man, to be so convinced of the supreme value of the group to which I happen to belong. Now, if I am a person, an individual, with great achievements, or great power, or much money, then all my employees will laugh about my jokes, even if they are terribly stupid, because they have to, and even they're impressed by them, because a very rich man has to make very good jokes. Uh, but if I'm a poor devil, I'm poor, uneducated, I have nothing, then I have to be terribly crazy to feel I am wonderful. But if I can feel that my group is wonderful, 
my religion, my race, my nation, my political party is so wonderful, then vicariously, by making the group the object of my narcissism, I arrive at the same narcissistic satisfaction which I have if I am only an individual narcissist. My fellow Americans, major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. That was George W. Bush, of course, proclaiming victory in Iraq as early as May 2003. After the publication of Escape from Freedom, uh, Fromm continued to live and work in the United States for many years afterwards. How did his work and his thinking develop coming into the post-war period, which of course was the period of McCarthyism, the Cold War, very much overt official hostility to any form of Marxism? You know, Fromm's works in general in the US developed in, at this time in the 40s and 50s, developed in what is often seen with some justification as becoming less serious in terms of scholarship, more clearly aimed at a kind of wider audience. And like like I say, I think there is some truth in this, but this, this fact is often, often overblown. Earlier, Fromm was writing in this environment which was less conducive and receptive to Marxism than had been the case in, in Germany, and he was keen to reach as many people as possible in the most effective way as possible. Um, a second factor is the fact that on leaving the Frankfurt Institute, from left in, was asked to leave effectively in 1939, he'd grown apart from Horkheimer on many issues. On leaving the Institute, he was kind of denied the funds that were available to Horkheimer and Adorno, such as the funds they got from high-profile Jewish charities to carry out the studies that eventually led to the authoritarian personality study. And so Fromm survived in this period primarily as a practicing psychoanalysis, but also, as time went on, as a kind of best-selling author. Despite this, in the height of McCarthyism in, 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 in the 50s, it's important to say that two of Fromm's most significant works were published, The Sane Society, which appeared in 1955, and The Art of Loving, which appeared a year later in, in 1956. And these works represent a return, even if at times a kind of critical return to Marx and to the issue of radical social change that had been perhaps lacking in the 40s after Escape from Freedom, when he didn't publish that much, in fact. And if you, if you look at The Sane Society, for instance, it's clear that it contained a sustained and blatant criticism of mid-20th century capitalism as manifested in the US, which Fromm saw as a form of um, you know, bureaucratic consumer capitalism. He speaks here in the same society of this notion of the marketing character, um, whereby people experience themselves and others literally as commodities, literally as something to be bought and sold on the market, and that this kind of demand of the market seeps its way into our very way of seeing the world and how we think about ourselves and others. So it's kind of like a psychological extension of um, the alienation theory or the theory of commodity fetishism. 
When Fromm appeared as a guest on ABC in 1958, he explicitly defined himself as a socialist and an opponent of capitalism. Quite a bold move for a foreigner in the US, just a few years after the peak of McCarthyism. I am a socialist. I understand by socialism society in which the aim of production is not profit, but the use. In which the individual citizen participates responsibly in his work and in the whole social organization and in which he is not a means who is employed by capital. I see socialism in the direction of management of enterprise by all who work in the enterprise. I would consider a socialism a mixture of the minimum of centralization necessary for a modern industrial state and a maximum of decentralization. Fromm went on to explain that his understanding of socialism was completely at odds with the Soviet model. The Russians have succeeded in one thing. They have sold the world the idea that they represent socialism and the ideas of Marx. And we have done the greatest service to their propaganda by agreeing that that's what it is. Socialism in the sense, in the humanistic democratic sense, in which Marx meant it, in which I understand by it, is exactly the opposite of a managed society by, managed by big bureaucracy. How this could be done, how individual responsibility can be aroused, can be created, that is a matter of social organization. We are terribly imaginative as far technique and science is concerned. As far changes in social arrangements are concerned, we lack utterly in imagination. I think also it's important to point out that the book also had a focus on different work practices, communitarian work practices, and other forms of radical non-capitalist, anti-capitalist politics. This clearly signalled a, a willingness on Fromm's part to engage in these with these issues at a time when it was clearly needed. And the FBI had a file on from, it was clearly an influential figure who did much to kind of stand up uh, for radical change. Although in the mid-50s, he does return to Marx. He's also, at this period in particular, critical of aspects of of traditional Marxism. And so in, in a passage that I think has great relevance to today, as it did to Fromm's day, he kind of comments on the fact that the famous statement at the end of the Communist Manifesto that the workers have nothing to lose but their chains contains a profound psychological error. He says that with their chains, they also have to lose all those irrational needs and satisfactions which originated while they were wearing the chains. And of course, he's alluding here to, I think, authoritarian aspects that had plagued socialist regimes at the time, but also things like sexism, racism, and, you know, nationalism. He's also strongly, one of the strongest themes in Fromm's writings, given his background, is this kind of deep, deeply critical position towards nationalism, which he he opposes, and, or opposes at least in, in the sane society, in kind of romantic terms, as the kind of antithesis of the love of humanity. He calls it our form of insanity. But not only is the same society important, I think also it's fair to say that the art, the art of loving was important. It's not necessarily the most obviously socialist or, or Marxist book. In fact, Herbert Marcuse, a friend, good friend of Fromm's and ex-colleague, was fairly, fairly critical of what he thought was Fromm's betrayal of radical thought and becoming what he called a, 
a ceremonistic social worker, so moving away from the critical tradition. But Fromm remained adamant and was involved in a very public debate with Marcuse over, over this, that the principle underlying capitalist society, he said, and the principle of love, um, in the kind of sense he used, are incompatible, and in that we have to analyse the fact that the conditions for for love and integrity and human realisation in these regard are absent in this society and try to strengthen them. What role did Fromm play in the genesis of the current that became known as Marxist humanism? Fromm played a quite central role in, in the development of this current, or what I, I like to call a tradition. From he wasn't the, the preeminent member of the tradition. You know, someone like Raya Dionyskaya or C.L.R. James, who were soaked in Marx and in the revolutionary movement, I think it's fair to say that people like them would be foremost. But Fromm was a household name who published the first full English translation of Marx's Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts of 1844. And he did much to publicise and bring Marxist humanism to kind of general consciousness. It's fair that to say that maybe Fromm's focus on Marx in his writings is a little too heavy, perhaps, on the 1844 manuscripts at times, but he never makes the mistake that some did in thinking particularly of the kind of Christian humanists, Christian Marxist humanists at the time, of praising them above Marx's later writings, such as um, Capital. Um, so I think the manuscripts are important, and Fromm's publication of them in 1961 is very important because it shows that we have this kind of admission on the part of Marx that the end goal of struggle is not communism, so to speak, but something he calls humanism, which is the kind of realisation of of human needs. Later in the 60s, in 1965, Fromm was responsible for bringing out an international collection on socialist humanism, which brought together you know, a series of leading socialist humanists from all over the world and bringing to attention these these individuals often in English for the first time people like the the Yugoslav Praxis school but also Czech uh, Marxist humanists like Karl Kosick or even Svitak as well as people like Raya Dunyanskaya and, and Leopold Senghor from also he wrote many many criticisms of the USSR in China at this time and, and used his fame to kind of provide many introductions to uh, books by Marxists and radical thinkers. By the time you reached the 1960s, as you said, Fromm had been separated from his former colleagues in the Frankfurt School for a long time in terms of their working lives, also separated in terms of geography because Horkheimer and Adorno went back to West Germany after the war, whereas Fromm carried on living in the US. How did they differ in their approach to events like the rise of the New Left and the Vietnam War coming into the 60s? I think what I see as kind of distinguishing from from Horkheimer and Adorno in particular is the following on from the last discussion, last question, is the explicit humanism of his writings. And what's meant by the word humanism today isn't always clear. There you know, there are a number of meanings. You have the, the humanism, the atheistic humanism of the, the British or American Humanist Association, this kind of hyper-enlightenment rationalism that you find in people like Richard Dawkins. But there are also, as I mentioned, uh, forms of Christian humanism and, crucially, forms of 
Marxist humanism, and, and this, of course, is the form closest to what Fromm takes. And, and for Fromm, this kind of Marxist revolutionary humanism was a, a philosophy that focused on the agency and dignity of the human being uh, and the role of actively engaged human beings in in transforming their social relations. So while others in the Institute obviously had some clear bearing to this position, of course, from was the most consistently and incontrovertibly humanist thinker, actually becoming more so in the aftermath of the Second World War and in the uh, the shadows of Auschwitz. Um, and so during the period which, you know, Horkheimer was teaming up with Adorno, writing books like Dialectic of Enlightenment, and then when they returned to, to Germany and Adorno was writing books like Negative Dialectics, Fromm was in kind of, in a sense, critiquing humanism, at least in the sense of the hope for agency and on the part of workers and, and kind of having a hopeful future based on the agency. Fromm was really kind of operationalizing humanism as a radical and, and penetrating philosophy that you know linked his concerns with Marx psychoanalysis to a whole series of other concerns, including kind of elements of religious thought, but also practical political concerns. And a, a clear example of this fact is that at the end of the 1950s and the turn of the 60s, Fromm became involved with the American Socialist Party and tried to kind of um, influence or rewrite, in a sense, or propose a re rewriting of their, their party programme. He was also vocal in his op opposition to the Vietnam War, whereas, as people will know, Horkheimer and Adorno were not. And he was a high-profile leader in, in, in the kind of anti-nuclear group SANE which he formed and also took the name from his book, The Saint, the acronym from his book, The Saint Society. In his 1964 talk at UCLA, Fromm spoke eloquently about his fear of nuclear war. Man becomes a prisoner of that which he creates and there is no more significant and tragic symbol of alienation modern times than nuclear weapons. Here are weapons which we have created. Here is a use of nuclear energy, which is perhaps the greatest expression of the capacity of human intellect and human reason. And yet, we in, here in the United States and the people in, in the Soviet bloc, we and the whole human race is ruled today by these nuclear weapons. Nobody wants war, and yet we don't know how to get rid of them. We have created them, and yet they dominate our lives and we just try frantically to see that we are not eventually destroyed by the domination of the very work of our hands. He also supported the, the Democratic primary campaign of Eugene McCarthy, writing speeches for this. And, and so I think all of this marked him out from his ex-colleagues, particularly Horkheimer and Adorno, this heightened sense of political engagement that was based on this conviction that the moment for the realisation of philosophy, as, as Adorno put it, had not been missed, but that the moment, which was of course a different moment, different from the 1910s and 1920s, it was a moment nevertheless where we had to engage as fully as possible if we had any, any hopes of kind of realising it. And so books like The Revolution of Hope and To Have or To Be kind of speak to this. And in this sense... Fromm is closer to Marcuse than he is to Horkheimer and Adorno. Although, 
you know, they both saw some positive aspects in the new left and the challenge to the Vietnam War and the vibrancy of the of the, the youth and the, and the kind of new questions they were posing over the multiple kind of alienations of social life. He also, and perhaps more so than Marcuse, saw some limitations, that, you know, in terms of kind of hyper militancy and, and, and Blanquist elements that were creeping in, as well as kind of idealist elements in, in relation to the to that hippies and other things. What would you say is the most important legacy of Fromm's work for today? I think that one of his most important legacies for the present moment is his Marxist humanism, that although this leaves something to be desired uh, in his elaboration of it at times, he also adds much, particularly, as I said, you know, making available aspects of Marx that were more accessible to a wider readership, which is something that as important today as has ever been, I think. Um, but his greatest legacy would say a legacy that's not unconnected from his contributions in, in the sphere of Marxist humanism is his social psychological contribution and his understanding of authoritarianism in in particular. So you know, Fromm was one of the original thinkers in this area. Um, although at times his writings on this, Escape from Freedom, etc., can be a little bit dated and uh, contain some mistakes from like an analytical perspective, they they do still speak strongly. This idea of the fear of freedom, in particular, the way that individuals set what we could call internal barriers that prevent them from opening up to socialistic and uh, humanist social relations is very potent, actually. And I think it can help explain not only outright authoritarianism, but also sexism, racism and xenophobia of various kinds. And in large part, of course, this arises as an effect of the workings of capitalism, at least in the particular kind of manifestations that we're witness to. But it can't just be deduced from capitalism in mechanical fashion. There is more complexity here, I think, more, more human complexity to be reckoned with. And because of this, you know, I think Fromm's right to kind of focus on this need for a concept of revolutionary humanism that goes alongside our socialism, alongside our Marxism. A revolution not only in terms of external barriers, uh, but in terms of internal ones, and to deal with the roots of authoritarian passions like sexism and racism, etc. He wasn't the only thinker to have argued this, but he draws the threads together in a way that few have done so, and in books that most people would stand a chance of comprehending, which I think can only be a good thing. Many thanks to Kieran Durkin for that tremendous overview of the career of Eric Fromm. If you'd like to know more about Fromm's work, I'd recommend starting with Kieran's essay for Jacobin, Eric Fromm and the Revolution of Hope. 